The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 511. Bravery is the active form of courage. Bravery is courage deployed in a moment of need. So courage is a resource at the ready, and certainly we want to cultivate courage in our life, but it's bravery that exhibits that courage. Is it possible that we're already three weeks into the new year, three weeks plus? Actually, hi, I'm Jeff, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 511 for January 23rd, 2024. And I'm so glad that you are here. I've got a fantastic guest lined up for you today. Uh, his name is Todd Henry. He's fantastic for so many reasons, not the least of which he's making his fifth appearance on the podcast. He's written a new book, his seventh, called, at least I believe it's his seventh, it's called The Brave Habit, A Guide to Courageous Leadership. And I'll be asking Todd to share things like the importance of understanding the difference between courage and bravery. It's an important distinction to make. Uh, the five-part ritual that comprises what he calls the brave habit, what it means to be brave enough to fail your way to growth. I learned a lot from him on this topic and much, much more. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I dedicated an episode uh, to my friend, Dan Miller, who back in December, the 7th of December, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He's had a huge impact on my life and the life of thousands of others and then last week, we sort of continued that in a way when I dove into the topic of legacy and building a lasting legacy, in large part because Dan is the best example I've ever seen of someone who has built a legacy. And it's with a, a bit of sadness that I have to share with you that uh, two days ago, Sunday, January 21st, just six weeks after that diagnosis, Dan passed away. Uh, and uh, he, he's on the other side now. He's no longer feeling any pain. And, and I, for one, know that I'm one day going to be able to uh, to see him again, and I'm really looking forward to that day. I don't think I've seen more tributes on social media and elsewhere to an individual than I have seen uh, for Dan these last uh, couple of days. And with every person's post and, and their story of how Dan has impacted them, including posts I've put out there, dozens of others are commenting on those posts about how he's impacted them or how me or somebody else introduced them to Dan and how Dan went on to impact their lives and that sort of thing. And so it's just, you, you want to see an example of a life well lived and study the life and the habits of, of Dan Miller. You may recall that Dan was the first ever guest on the Read to Lead podcast. Another early guest who made his debut appearance in episode 17 is today's guest. Todd Henry is the author of seven books, which have been translated into more than a dozen languages. We've featured five of those books, counting the book we're looking at today right here on this show. With nearly 20 million downloads, Todd's podcast has provided weekly inspiration for creative professionals since 2005. I remember Todd's show, Accidental Creative, was one of the first podcasts I ever began listening to way back in 2007. Todd speaks, trains, and consults 
around the world on the topics of creativity, leadership, and passion for work. Todd's new book, the one we're unpacking today, is out today, and it's called The Brave Habit, A Guide to Courageous Leadership. Todd, this is an absolute treat to have you here. As you know, this is, I think, visit number five. I've gone back and, and checked the records, and I think last time you were here, three years ago this week, was a record for visits, more than any other wow. guest. So now you've pulled even further ahead. Welcome back for the fifth time. I feel like I'm overstaying my welcome a little bit. What is it? Benjamin Franklin said that fish and guests smell after three days. So I hope I'm not overstaying my welcome here. But Jeff, it is such a joy. I mean, seriously, like when I think of consummate professionals in this space, you are absolutely at the peak of those consummate professionals. And so it's always a joy to get to chat with you. Well, when I uh, think of Todd Henry and I think of the accidental creative and the fact that you started a podcast, you know, eight years before I did, you're, you're, you're really the OG. Some people will call me an OG and I'm like, well, you don't know Todd Henry. <laughs> He's the guy who's <laughs> really been doing it from the beginning. And as you know, your podcast is one of the first ones I ever started listening to ever mm -hmm. uh, back when podcasts were just in their infancy. You know, we were talking off mic about, you know, s stories you don't often get a chance to share. And there's a story at the front of your book that you share uh, from when you were a teenager that I don't think I knew. Uh, mm. I, I want to say I'm reading this for the first time. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a bit about that story, what you went through and the impact ultimately that that had on you. Yeah. Um, so when I was uh, 15 years old, I was uh, playing in a basketball game. I was a uh, basketball was my absolute love at the time. I was playing in a varsity basketball game. I was a sophomore in high school. And I started feeling this kind of like this tightness in my back. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. You know, so the coach pulled me out of the game and I stretched a little bit and, you know, kind of tried to put me back in. I couldn't run. So he pulled me from the game and I, I went and sat on the bench and I just couldn't, I thought maybe I'd pulled a muscle or something mm. and uh, went home, you know, showered, went to bed in the middle of the night. I woke up and I couldn't move my legs. I was in extreme pain, um, moving my legs one inch left or right suddenly would send a shooting pain up and down my entire body. And so I kind of rolled out of bed in great pain, crawled arm over arm into the hallway. And I yelled for my parents and said, Hey, um, something's wrong here. My legs aren't working. Mm. And so they called an ambulance, took me to the hospital. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of concern. They did a, an initial scan and they saw a giant mass, the size of a grapefruit. Uh, in my abdomen and they thought it was a, a cancerous tumor. Mm. So they did exploratory surgery. And what they discovered was that it was actually an infection that had gotten, it got into a muscle uh, and was pressing that muscle against my uh, sciatic nerve. Um, mm. It's called sacroiliitis is the, the name of the condition. And so basically I, I was there in the hospital, the hospital, my little rural hospital where I grew up, they couldn't handle it. So they transferred me after a couple of days to an infectious disease ward at the Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And my doctor, Dr. Michael Brady, by the way, which for those of you who are Brady Bunch fans will, <laughs> will love the fact his name is Mike, Mike Brady. Um, he came out and he told my parents, hey, um, if I can save him, mm. I'm going to have to pump him full of so many antibiotics that they're almost certainly going to be side effects. Um, so I just want to know, like, are you okay with that? And they said, well, of course, I mean, save him if you can save him. Right. So they did. I mean, they, they, 
put so much in me, right? Um, and, it, and it worked. It actually got rid of the infection, which is crazy. But I was in the hospital for weeks. Um, I lost, I went into the hospital at six foot three, about 190 pounds. You know, I was an athlete. Um, came out six foot three and like 128, 130 pounds. So I'd lost wow. like 50 pounds of, mm. and mostly muscle because I didn't have a lot of fat to lose, you know, in just a handful of weeks. And so I, they told me at that time, like you, will be able to walk again. You'll be able to learn how to walk and be able to regain your your uh, ability to to move, but just know that probably basketball is not going to be back in the cards for you because mm. I mean it's just going to be too much for you to you know develop all that again. And I just I kind of refused to accept that. So over the next several months, you know, I was drinking protein shakes and I started being able to walk and then I could run and I would run steps and by the next season I was actually playing basketball again and ended up being a fun story and I had a good career in high school and all that. But the reason I tell that story is not like, hey, let's relive the glory days of high school <laughs> basketball, but because that moment really taught me something. And, and at the time it was terrible, but now I look back on it as a gift. It showed me, A, how fragile life is and, and B, that life is full of moments like that. You know, Once you've been in the hospital and subjected to the indignity of hospital gowns and people treating you like a pin cushion mm. uh, for months at a time, you suddenly realize what's important and what's not, you know, your priorities become crystal clear. And I vowed to myself, and I remember this very clearly vowed to myself, I am not going to take life for granted, which for a teenager is a precious gift because mm. I think most teenagers think they're going to live forever. Right. And I, that moment gave me a sense of urgency about life. Mm. And I still remember to this day what that felt like. And so I really wrote this book in some ways, and by the way, uh, something I, I don't share very often, but I actually have on my uh, wall here, I have a cutout. It's a three by three cutout of the high school gym. They tore the gym down a couple of years ago to build a new one. And I have a three by three cutout of the top of the key, mm. um, which is where I used to like to shoot. That was my favorite place to shoot. Um, they would set some double screens for me and I'd pop up and grab the ball and you know t- take shots from the top of the key. So my dad, when they tore down the gym, grabbed the three by three square of the top of the key and gave it to me. And it's there mm. to remind me that, listen, we're going to have moments in our life where we have to make a decision. Am I going to rise to the moment? Am I going to exhibit bravery in this moment or am I going to succumb? Am I going to be a coward? Am I going to shrink from the moment? Am I going to choose safety and comfort? Um, and those moments aren't always things like we go in the hospital. Sometimes those moments are, am I going to have this uncomfortable conversation with my manager? Am I going to mm-hmm. challenge this idea? Am I going to introduce this idea? You know, Am I going to reconcile this relationship? Even though really the other person should be coming to me, I'm going to choose to do it because I want to be the, the brave person in this moment. Mm. Um, we all have those moments. And I think that you know when we look back on our life, when we consider how we've lived our life, what we're really going to be thinking about is how did I treat the important moments in my life? Did I mm. confront them with bravery or did I shrink from them in cowardice? Mm. And so that's why I wrote this book was to give people a sense of how to rise to the moment. Thank you, first of all, for sharing that. And, and that too, I mean, impacted kind of what you did as a career, right? I mean, not really liking getting up in front of people and talking and having a fear right. of, of speaking and, and not being comfortable, being maybe shy or introverted and, and how this kind of helped bring you out of that. And, and you're doing things today you never thought you would do in part because of that, that incident. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I was, uh, I was like a pretty shy kid. You know, I was like afraid to ask girls on dates and I was, <laughs> you know, like uh, didn't really want to speak up and all that kind of stuff. And after this, I was like, what do I have to lose? I mean, come on. I've been like in the hospital. I've had all these needles stuck in me. I've been through these, I almost died. Like when people come into your hospital room 
and you notice that they're choosing their words very carefully because mm. it might be the last thing they ever say to you. It, it has an impact on you mm. as a teenager, mm. really at any age, but especially as a teenager, when you realize like, oh my gosh, these people think I'm going to die. What are they not telling me? Am I, mm. am I going to die? Like, you know, it has an impact on you. And um, I would never wish anybody to go through that experience, but I definitely would wish people to have that sense of clarity and urgency that comes with having been through that kind of experience. You know, on a lighter note, I appreciated hearing about your uh, journey with running, uh, which is very similar to mine. I have had some foot issues as of late, so I haven't run in a while. But I always was someone who loved having ran, but I hated the running itself. And and that's something that you you realized this one day as you did it for a while, that suddenly you were actually enjoying this, or at least you were caught up in other things and forgetting about maybe the discomfort you were feeling as you were running. Yeah. And I think that's the way it is for a lot of things, right? I think that we have to get over those hurdles of discomfort and that sort of initial sort of friction that we experience. Um, and, And that's, again, that's true of anything. Like people, you know, I work with a lot of artists and creative pros and people who have to make things and solve problems. And the the problem for them typically is not, am I talented enough to do this? The problem mm. for them is that when they're starting what they're doing, what they what they're typing, what they're, you know, when they're pushing pixels, trying to design something, it doesn't feel good enough in their mind. It doesn't match their ideal of perfection. And so they get stuck. They become paralyzed by their own expectation escalation. And I think the same is true for running with me. You know, I thought. You know, I would go out and and when I started running, I was like, okay, I'm going to go out. And I'm going to run like seven minute miles. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to go out. I'm just going to like, basically, which I'm 50 years old, Jeff. So, <laughs> it, you know, there are 50 year olds who run seven minute miles for sure. There are 50 year olds who are running like five and a half minute miles. Right. I mean, getting down into the four minute mile range, eh, but you know, um, but I realized like why, why am I running? Like, what am I trying to do here? What am I trying to accomplish? I'm not trying to prove that I'm an athlete. I'm trying to get healthy. I'm trying to, you know, find so so what I did was I I figured out a way to A, make it repetitive and habitual in my life. Mm. And B, try to make it enjoyable. So I plan now and I still do this. Like I run a 5K five days a week. That's kind of my my mm. running routine okay. um, around our neighborhood. I've got like a route that's like a perfect route. And I I do that but I plan for it and I plan like, oh, I'm going to listen to Jeff's latest podcast today. And that's sort of my incentive, right? Or I'm going to listen to a, an audiobook I've been you know, wanting to listen to, or honestly, I'm going to listen to like the latest edit of my next episode because I want to make sure that it's, it's okay or whatever. Mm. But I, but I plan for what I'm going to do and I try to make it enjoyable. Like mm. running doesn't have to be a punishment. And yeah. I think that is something too, that like, if we want habits to be in it, I know James Clear wrote about this pretty, pretty, eloquently, like if we want habits to stick, we have to make them something that we're going to look forward to, something that we're going to enjoy. Um, They don't have to be a punishment for us. Yeah. Well said. Uh, I want to get a little inside baseball here for just a second, a little geeky and ask you about publishing and your decision to Mm self-publish this time around. Your previous, I think all of your previous books, if I'm not mistaken, have been traditionally published. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, This one is self-published. Talk about that. Yeah, it is. So this is not a, a, a light decision, as you can imagine. There's a lot that goes into trying to put a book into the world. And um, fortunately, I've had the phenomenal experience of you know, my first several books were published by Portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my last book was published by uh, Source Books, which is, I think, 45% owned by Penguin Random House. So basically, mm-hmm. it was you know, sort of a, 
a traditional publishing experience, even though they're an independent publisher. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, six books in with traditional publishers, I've, I've learned a few things about the publishing world. I've learned a few things about how to put books together and, and what resonates and what doesn't. And we had, you know, offers on this new book, but I've been working on this book since 2016. Mm. It is a crisp 156 pages. Um, it's it's not a 300-page hardcover $30 book. It's a crisp 156 pages. Mm. And it took me seven years to get to 156 pages, meaning to get it down to 156 pages, to mm. get it to a really trim book. It's pretty rare that you're going to find a publisher who's okay with that, who's okay <laughs> right. with a thin easy to read in a couple settings paperback. Why? Because, you know, they want to set the retail price at a certain place and, yeah. or they, or they want it to be, you know, bigger and longer to make it worth their investment. And so as I started looking at this book, I realized my goal is to get this book into as many hands as possible, but more importantly, to get as many people as possible to read this book. I want to inspire an epidemic of everyday bravery in life and in work mm-hmm. in our neighborhoods and our communities and leadership. And what's the best way to do that? It's for me to be able to get the book into as many hands as possible, which means I need to have as much flexibility as I can to use this material in whatever way we'll get it into people's hands. So I'll give you an example of that. I'm doing a speaking event in a couple of weeks. I do a lot of speaking events. I'm doing a speaking event in a couple of weeks in San Francisco, and there are going to be a couple hundred people at this event. So it's a leadership event. And I'm able to get books into all 200 people's hands because Mm -hmm. it's self-published. Now, if it was traditionally published, I'd be saying, great, here's where you can buy the books. They're going to be probably 16 to $18 a piece. So it's going to be, you know, three, four grand for you to buy books because I can't, you know, like I can't provide those for you. (laughs) But in this case, I'm able to provide them and put them in everybody's hands because it's self-published in that way. And honestly, the the reader experience is no different. People order it, it shows up on Amazon Prime or whatever, it shows up in people's hands or shows up on their Kindle or shows up in Audible just the same. And so for me, it was really a matter of flexibility of being able to get it into the right hands. That said, and I think this is important for listeners, because I know there's a big debate about traditional versus mm. you know, self or hybrid publishing and all of that. Um, I'm a huge fan of traditional publishing and and I very well might at some point go back to traditional publishing for a future project. I think each distribution method has its perfect use case. And in this case, for me, self-publishing was definitely the most appropriate use case. Mm. You mentioned earlier with regard to the content of the book, bravery being about moments, and you shared some examples. Um, What about courage? How do you distinguish here between courage versus bravery? Yeah. So there's been a lot of talk about courage in the last handful of years. I mean, there have been a ton of books about courage. And I, I think that's a really valuable thing because it really forces people to be introspective. You know, am I courageous? Am I exhibiting courage? Um, but here's my problem with all of those conversations. I don't just call it a problem. It's just really more of a, a, a tension that I, that I feel. Mm. The tension I feel is that telling somebody to be courageous, if I just said to you, Jeff, be, be courageous. That's a little like telling you to be a couple inches taller or <laughs> jump a little higher or ha- have bluer eyes. You know, it's like you're telling somebody to do something, but how, like, how do you do that? I, I don't know. Just, I guess, try to muster up courage. But if I, if I look at something you do and I say, wow, that was really brave, Jeff, because I observed something that you did, a choice that you made, that's a very different calculation. My argument in the book, in The Brave Habit, is that bravery is the active form of courage. Mm. 
Bravery is courage deployed in a moment of need. So courage is a resource at the ready. And certainly we want to cultivate courage in our life, but it's bravery that exhibits that courage. And so while I can't control how much courage I feel, just like I can't control any of my feelings, I can choose in the moment to be brave. I can choose to do the thing that is uncomfortable when called to do it. I I can have the uncomfortable conversation, even though I want to keep my mouth shut. I can share the idea. I can put the project into the world, right? I can enter into a conversation with my neighbor who disagrees with me over everything. You know, I can enter into the, not, not really. I, we have lovely neighbors. I'm saying I'm hypothetically, um, I can, I can enter into a conversation with my neighbor who disagrees with me on everything and do that in an empathetic way, because I am choosing not to be threatened by their point of view. Instead, I'm willing to have a conversation with them and enter in and try to understand them. It's an act of bravery. We need bravery more than ever right now in our culture, in our workplace, in our in our neighborhoods, because we are facing more uncertainty than ever. Businesses are facing economic uncertainty, the uncertainty that AI is bringing into the mix, right? Um, politically, I mean, we are absolutely facing more uncertainty than I've ever experienced in my entire life, right? Like the uncertainty of what if. Um, so I, th- I think that right now, more than ever, what we really need to challenge people with is, listen, in, in every moment, important moment, you have the ability to choose, am I going to exhibit bravery or am I going to feed cowardice? Khalil Gibran, the great poet, wrote, verily the lust for comfort murders the passion of the soul and then walks grinning in the funeral, right? When we choose cowardice, we murder our own soul. When we choose bravery, we become fully human. And the choice is very much ours to make. Uh, you spent some time, too, sharing about the importance of, of rituals with regard to goals. And you mentioned James Clear earlier. I think of what he wrote about in Atomic Habits. We don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the levels of our systems. Talk about the, the five-part ritual that comprises the brave habit. Yeah. So there, so there are um, two key elements that I discovered are present in moments when brave decisions are made. And when these two key elements are lacking, then often um, we are tempted to succumb to cowardice. And I, I lay this mm-hmm. out kind of in the two by two uh, in the book. Um, I call one of the quadrants is the bravery quadrant. The other three are the cowardice quadrants. And they have different qualities, but I just want to, I'm, I'm laying this out because I want to explain the ritual to you and why, why these two factors play into it. The first thing that tends to be present when brave action occurs is there's an optimistic vision of the future. Mm. And what this means is I believe in a circumstance that there's a better possible future available. Okay. So if I am in a situation where I know that I need to have a difficult conversation with my manager, in order for me to do that, I have to believe that having that conversation could help lead to a better possible future. I could see a better outcome on the other side than what I'm currently experiencing, right? So if I don't see a better outcome, then the likelihood is I'm not going to have that conversation. I'm going to shrink back from it, right? So that's the first quality is optimistic vision versus pessimism. Mm -hmm. The second quality that's typically present is a sense of agency or perceived agency Mm -hmm. versus perceived powerlessness, meaning not only do I have a better vision of a better possible future, but I believe I can do something to bring it about. I believe that there's something I can do to help bring about that thing I see in my head on the other side. So, you know, I I know that we could do better as a team and I believe I have the agency to have that conversation with my manager. And so now the choice for me is, am I going to embrace that agency and do the thing or am I going to shrink from it 
and retreat into a place of cowardice, right? So the reason I bring this up is because they're the core part of this ritual. The the five-part ritual spells the word brave, B-R-A-V-E, because I love to do that because it's really easy to remember. (laughs) Me too. Um, The first part is to block. It's to block time consistently. I recommend about 15 minutes a week to review all of the areas of tension or uncertainty in your life, all of the areas in your life where you're potentially going to experience a need for bravery. So you block the time, you review, that's the R, review those areas of tension. Look at all your relationships. Who are you going to be interacting with this week? What projects are due uh, You know that, that could require you to have to act bravely? Uh, what areas of uncertainty are there with your clients or with your friends or in your relationships? Review all of those areas in your life where bravery could be required of you. A is for agency. So claim agency in those areas. What agency do you have in those areas to bring about a better possible future? V is for vision. Reinforce your vision for each of those things. What's my vision for this client? What's my vision for my role? What's my vision for my relationship with my manager or or that client or um, in my neighborhood or in my relationship? You know, What's my vision for my relationship with my spouse or my, my significant other? Mm. Um, so re- review your vision. And then finally, E is express. Express an, atten- an intent in each of those areas of, intent, of, of tension, mm. meaning here's what I intend to do this week in order to bring about that better possible future. Okay. Why do we do this? Because we tend to wing it. Most talented people rely on their instincts. They rely on their gut. They rely on, you know, just rising to the moment. They they mm-hmm. think that just by virtue of the fact that they've done it before, that they're just going to continue to do it. But that's not the way human behavior operates. Mm-hmm. We when we when we get ahead of those moments, when we reinforce for ourselves our vision, our sense of agency, what we're able to do to bring about that better possible future. And we express it as an intent. This Mm -hmm. week, I am going to have a difficult conversation with my manager because this is not tenable any longer. When we express that and we make a commitment to ourselves, then when we get to the moment, it's a lot harder to shrink from the moment. It's a lot harder to retreat into cowardice because you've already planned ahead of time what bravery is going to look like for you. Now, if I just told you, Jeff, be courageous this week in your relationships. Okay, that's fine. But what does that even, what does that mean? Courage often comes disguised as wisdom. We hear things like, oh, well, wouldn't it be better if, or maybe you should wait until, or wouldn't it be more politically expedient if you, you know, these are the things that, that, this whispers in our ear and we're like, oh yeah, that's actually the wiser path. But the reality is often that's just cowardice disguised as wisdom. Now, one more quick thing, uh, and this is a very important distinction. Sorry, I'm going on and on. Just cut me off at any time, Jeff. No, no, I love just it. give me the signal. Um, <laughs> bravery doesn't always mean acting, especially when you don't yet have a sense of agency or you mm. don't yet have a clear vision. Bravery and boldness are not the same thing. People who take wild leaps into the unknown or take stupid risks, that's not necessarily brave. That might just be bold. As a matter of fact, sometimes making a bold leap is the most cowardly thing you can do because you're absolving yourself of the consequences. You're just making a leap, hoping it works out. Well, that's not brave. That's just bold. And in some cases, it might just be stupid, right? Right. Um, So bravery is always calculated. Bravery is always strategic. Bravery always accounts for the cost and chooses to do it anyway. You, you mentioned cultivating agency. I uh, wonder if we could talk maybe a little bit more about what that looks like in the sense that you, where you talk about proficiency and people and platform and how those three things come together specifically to play a role in this process. Yeah. So it's not enough to just have a vision. When we talk about actually you know, acting, that means claiming agency. 
which means claiming your role in bringing about that vision. And there are really three key areas where you can do that. The first is your proficiency. What skills do you have? What skills can you deploy? What have you learned? What have you developed that can be deployed in the pursuit of that vision? The second one is platform. What platform do you have to bring about that vision? So I might, for example, have a very clear sense of how we could fix uh, the war in Ukraine, right? Or something like that. I don't have the platform to be able to affect change there. So it's not necessarily brave for me just to start lobbing out ideas because I have no platform. There's nothing for really that I can do to, to bring about that change. It's in my sphere of concern, but it's not in my sphere of influence, as Stephen Covey would say. Mm. So we have to look at our platform. What platform do I have to help bring about change? Um, so we have platform, we have proficiency, and then we have people. Who do I know? Who might I be able to relate with? Who do I, who's in my network who might help me be able to bring about that better possible future? And we can develop each of these areas of agency. We can develop our network and develop our relationships. We can develop our proficiency by developing new skills that will help us achieve that vision. And at the end of the day, you know, we, we can develop our platform, meaning we can build a platform to help us amplify our action. You write too, Todd, about modes of bravery. Yeah. Uh, what what are some of the of the forms that brave choices might take? So obviously, the one we think of the most is bravery to act. You know, bravery mm-hmm. to make uh, some sort of uh, take some sort of brave action or make a brave decision. So that's the one that we often think of. Okay, I'm in a moment, and am I going to act bravely or am I going to shrink into cowardice? Mm-hmm. But there are a couple of other ways that bravery plays out in our life. One of them is bravery to let go. Many people there's a, there's a concept in childhood development called brachiation. It's the ability to let go of one thing while simultaneously grabbing a hold of another. So think of a child swinging on a set of monkey bars, right? Swinging from bar to bar. That's a skill that has to be developed. Um, If you go on a set of monkey bars and you swing to the next bar, but you refuse to let go of the one you're already holding, what's going to happen? You're going to get stuck and and you're going to end up achieving your worst fear. The reason you didn't (laughs) let go to begin with, which is you're going to fall because you're going to stall your momentum. Well, some people are stalled in their life because they haven't developed psychological brachiation. They haven't developed the ability to let go of one thing and move on to another. In life, sometimes the most brave thing we can do is let go of something really good so that we can move on and pursue the vision that we have in our head of how things could be better. I'll give you an example in, in my life. I just, you mentioned I've been podcasting since 2005. I just drove a semi truck through 18 years of my work. Mm-hmm. Um, we eliminated 18 years and thousands of episodes of the back catalog of the Axel Creative Podcast. Mm-hmm. And we renamed it and rebranded and reformatted the show and started over with episode one of Daily Creative on January 1st, 2024. If you go looking for the 18, last 18 years of my work, it's gone. It's gone. You won't find it anywhere. I did that because as I was writing this book, I was challenging people to ask some really uncomfortable questions. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions I asked was, if I were to start over today with Accidental Creative, would I be doing it the way I'm doing it right now? And the uncomfortable answer I came to was, no, I wouldn't. I, I would be doing it very differently. Well, the next logical question, Jeff, is, well, then why are you doing it that way? Crap. I have some decisions to make, right? Because I realized I had a vision of a better possible future. I had agency. To bring it about because I know how to podcast. I know how to do the thing I wanted to do, which is to create a more storytelling thematic type of show. But in order to do that, I had to let go. I had to let go of the way things. And the thing is, things were fine. We, we were we had tons of sponsors. I had to let go of advertising to do that because you, as you know, when you get rid of a back catalog, that's you know lots yeah. and lots of millions of downloads a year that we're just like getting rid of, you know. Mm-hmm. 
So that's like somebody's really good salary that I just mm-hmm. turned my back on in order to make this move. So it was it was not without cost, but here's the thing. I knew it was right. I know it's the right direction to go. And so am I going to be somebody challenging other people to be brave with their work while I'm full well knowing that I'm kind of settling with fine. It's just fine. Mm-hmm. It's okay. No, I'm not I'm not okay with that. So I had to let go of something I've been doing for 18 years in order to grab on to the thing that I think is the right direction for the future. That's an example of psychological breakage. And it's it's brave. It is bravery to do that. So I I, I challenge people to think about are there places mm-hmm. in your life where you're settling for fine and you know it could be better, but you just can't let go of the way mm-hmm. things are. So that's the second mode of bravery, bravery to act and bravery to let go. And the third is bravery to wait. Sometimes we think bravery is rushing into buildings and saving people. We think it's making brash leaps into the unknown. But sometimes that's, as I mentioned, that's not bravery. That's just boldness. And there's a difference between the two things. Sometimes the bravest thing you can do is plant your feet and say, listen, I know everybody else is rushing into this. I know everybody else is doing this thing, but I'm not ready to do it. I don't have the skills yet or the agency. I don't yet have the vision. So I'm going to plant my feet and grow deep roots until I'm ready to move. And you need strong voices around you. You need community who knows you and is willing to speak truth to you in order to do that, because that's going to mean standing against the tide sometimes. Everybody else is going to say you're crazy, but the best thing to do is just stay planted right where you are. So bravery to wait is the third mode of bravery. And I have a real distaste for a lot of the popular wisdom in some of the books that say, just go do it. Just, you know, if you have a thought, just go do it. Just, just leap, just do it. Don't even think about it. Just go do it. And I'm like, no, no, that's... That's terrible advice. Mm. That's the kind of advice that leads to misery and divorce and broken businesses and uh, ruined careers because people, that's not bravery. That's just boldness. Mm. Um, And so my encouragement to people is just understand which mode of bravery is required of you right now in these different areas. It's going to be different in each area. So in some places you need to act. In some places, maybe you need to wait or you need to let go. You know, I've been in that place too, the let go place. I've been evaluating this podcast that is now 10 and a half years old. And do I still need to be doing it the way I'm doing it? Is it something else? I, I was, and I'm glad you brought up some of the podcast history there because I went to your Brave Habit site this morning and I was like, episode three, what's going on here? So I was going to ask you about that anyway. So I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you addressed that. Well, we talked about cultivating agency at length, and, and we've hit on some of this, uh, maybe not labeled it as such, but what, what does cultivating optimistic vision look like in, in the real world? Nothing happens in this world until we see it in our mind first. Um, we have to be able to envision a better possible future. And so cultivating optimistic vision at the heart of it really means understanding your desired outcome. What desired outcome do you have in those areas? What would it look like if you were doing work that you were proud of? What would it look like if you had a thriving relationship with your manager? What would it look like if your company was not only doing good business, but also doing good in the world, right? Mm. Um, What would it look like if I had a healthy, thriving neighborhood where we all didn't agree, but we all really got along because we really care deeply about each other? Um, You know, those are the kinds of conversations that we need to have with ourselves in order to develop a vision of a better possible future. And then once we begin to understand that vision, that's when we have to claim agency and act in order to bring it about. What do you mean, Todd, when you say that you need to be brave enough to fail your way to growth? 
So there are some phases we go through as we develop in our professional career or really in anything that we're trying to develop. Let's say you're trying to learn how to play guitar, right? You're going to go through some distinct phases. The first phase you go through is emulation. It's copying. You copy other people, you know? And so when you learn how to play guitar, for example, or when you started in radio years and years ago, you probably emulated some of your radio heroes. I would imagine that was probably, you know, you were even your cadence and the way you, your mic technique and all that stuff probably was like influenced by your by your heroes. Um, and that's great. But at some point you begin to diverge. You begin to find your own voice. You begin to, to sail perpendicular to the shore and you develop a unique style, a unique voice, mm. which is great. That's a wonderful thing. Highly contributive place. And that's also one of the most dangerous places you can be in your career, becoming known for a thing. Because the moment you become known for a thing, what's your instinct? It's to protect that thing. It's to circle the wagons, keep doing the thing, stop growing, right? And so the reason this is so important for people is they need to understand in order to continue to grow, it means you're going to have to try some new things. It means you're going to have to venture into uncharted waters. You're going to have to, just like you did at the beginning when you were learning that skill by copying other people, you need to learn some new skills to continue to add to your voice, to continue to grow. Well, that's going to mean failing. It is. If you're not failing, you're not trying hard things. If you're not trying hard things, you're not growing. You're just Mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. And so being brave enough to fail your way into growth means being brave enough to keep trying things even when you become known for something. So again, back to the example of my podcast. The easiest thing for me to do is just circle the wagons and keep going, keep cranking out advertising revenue, keep having people on who's got a book coming out. Okay. I'll interview them. Keep doing the thing. That's fine. And listen, I am grateful that Jeff Brown does that better than anybody else in the world. I'm grateful that that's what you do, that you, that you interview and you get the best out of people. You're, you're brilliant at that. Right. And I think that's something that you're uniquely gifted at. And so that's that's great but but my vision was a little different mm-hmm. right my vision was to have a different kind of show that reaches a, a different kind of listener mm-hmm. who wants more of a story based thing and more produced and more sort of like NPR like well that's great but how do i do that well it's going to mean i'm going to have to i've never done that before i'm going to have to take some risks and some public risks and it mm-hmm. might fail and maybe a couple of the episodes here are going to be not so great while i'm kind of figuring mm-hmm. it out but I need to be brave enough to do it. And by the way, when I talk about agency, I, I need to bring some people in who understand how to do that. And so, you know, when we talk about claiming agency, people, proficiency, and platform, I had the platform to do it because I've, you know, just rebranded the show with the same people listening to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I have the proficiency because I know I have the um, ability to, to do podcasts, but the people piece of it, I'm like, who do I know who understands story really, really well? So I brought in my friend, Joshua Gott, who I've worked with on past projects because he's great at crafting story. I need to leverage that part of my agency by bringing in people who understand how to help me achieve that vision. And again, the, the easiest and probably most cowardly thing would be just to phone it in, just let it go. But that would not be doing a service to myself or to my audience. So I am in the process of failing my way to growth because <laughs> I, you know people may not like it or it may, a couple episodes may be terrible, but I don't think they are, by the way, but they, but they could be <laughs> at some point. We could definitely put out a clunker, but that's just the way it is. You know, yeah. you have to be willing to do that if you want to grow, if you want to get better. Mm-hmm. A former leader of mine, a mentor of, of mine, was a big fan of uh, Pat Lencioni's uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And one of those dysfunctions is the fear of conflict. 
Um, let's talk about yeah. teams for just a second. You say that healthy teams fight, but they do it in a healthy way. Right. Unpack that if you would. Yeah, I mean one one of the, one of the things I I despise hearing from leaders because I work with a lot of teams, right? Is oh, we're so healthy, we never fight. Right. And I just want to say you are the most profoundly dysfunctional organization <laughs> I've ever encountered. The reason is healthy teams fight. They do. Yeah. If there's no conflict on your team, it means one of a couple of things. Number one, people don't care. They, they don't care about the work, so they're not going to fight. Why, why would I put myself on the line? I don't care. What, let's just do whatever. I don't care. Or they don't feel accountable. Well, I'm not going to put myself on the line because I'm not accountable for the outcome, so it doesn't matter to me what we do, right? Mm. Or number three, they don't understand who's accountable or they just don't care about the work. Mm. And so if you have conflict, it's a good thing. How you handle that conflict is everything. It has to be about the idea, not about the personality. It has to be from a position of empathy. So I have to understand your point of view. I can't just tell you you're wrong without understanding why you're saying what you're saying, because there's probably some validity in your point of view, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a talented pro and we have to submit to authority, we have to understand that just because I have permission to speak doesn't mean I have permission to make a decision. Mm. So if somebody disagrees with me who has a, is, is in a position of authority and they listen to me, they listen to my point of view and they say, that's great. We're, we're going to go a different direction. I have done my part. At that point, I have been brave because I've right. spoken what I see. I've, I've claimed my agency. I've put my vision out there to people and they've said, no, oh, great. That, that's fine. It's not my job any longer. I've done everything I can do mm. in order to, to bring about this change. And I have to be brave enough then to be able to say, okay, that I've done my part. I can lay my head down tonight content with how I conducted myself mm. because I did my part. With, when it comes to conflict, that's the thing we have to keep in mind is we're not always going to agree, but we have to agree on something. And that something has to be what we're trying to do as an organization. Mm. You you dedicate a chapter specifically to leaders. There's there's teams, leaders, neighbors. Think of that leader that's listening to this right now. What advice would you give to them specifically as a leader in this realm of practicing bravery? So there are two, there are two principles I talk about in the book, and I'm torn about which one to share. So I'll just very briefly touch on both of them. The first one is put your resources where your mouth is mm -hmm. uh, a lot of leaders love to talk a big game with their team. They love to make all these big plans and talk about all the things they're going to do. But when it comes time to actually put their resources behind it or to actually put skin in the game, they shrink back. Mm. They expect their team to take risks, but they're not willing to take risks on behalf of their team. So just understand that if you're going to speak with a brave voice, you have to be willing to follow that up with brave action uh, or else it's not really bravery. Um, and, and a lot of organizations fail culturally because people lose trust in their leader because their leader says all the right things, but they're not really willing to do the thing to support it because it's politically uncomfortable to do it, right? Like uh, they, they don't want to risk their role, their job, their position in order to, to bring it about. So that's the first thing. Um, and then the second thing is you have to be willing to speak truth to power. So I, mm. I encounter leaders often in organizations, um, and I know this because not because of what they say, but because of what people around them say to me, mm. who say one thing to their team, complaining about them, the, the leadership, the people in the corner office who are mm. obviously trying to make your life miserable you know, <laughs> as an employee. And then they turn around and say something very different to their own leadership. Can you believe what my team is doing? They're just not delivering. They're not doing what I'm asking them to. They're, you know, 
Um, that is the epitome of cowardice to do that. And so you have to be willing to speak truth to power. You also have to speak with candor to your team. And uh, you have to be a person who is seen as an advocate of your team and also an advocate of the organization because you, you, you're you in the middle. Leadership's about being in the middle. Mm. People think leadership's about being on top. It's not. Leadership's about, an, it's a negotiation from a position squarely in the middle. I don't care what level of what organization you're talking about. Even the CEO has to report to the board. Even the board has to report to the shareholders, right? Everybody's in the middle. And so it's all about negotiating those conversations down and those conversations up and learning how to, to deal with that. And you have to you have to deal with them with integrity, which means you have to be brave enough to say uncomfortable things in both directions from time to time. I want to ask you a couple of questions in the time we have remaining, Todd, not necessarily directly related to the book. Before I do that, though, anything from the book I haven't asked you about that you want to make sure you get a chance to, to share or talk about? No, I, this has been a great conversation. I think I think really you know, the main thing that I want people to understand is your life is going to be about moments. And at the end of your life, you're going to look back on those moments and the quality of your life is going to be determined by how you responded in those moments. And so are you going to rise to the moment or are you going to shrink from the moment? And my encouragement to people is develop a sense of vision and develop the the capacity or the agency that you need in order to bring about that vision so that you can rise to the moment in your lives. I find that most well-written books, and this is one of them, often highlight other books throughout, uh, as you do uh, in this one. I mentioned it's been three years to the week uh, since we last uh, chatted on this show. What books in that time span over the last two or three years would you say stick out to you as being ones that are going to be with you for a while? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, so I, I've read through in that time. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you some that like popped to the top of my head. Um, sure. The Righteous Mind, which is a phenomenal book about how we determine right and wrong and sort of where that comes from. Mm -hmm. It's a phenomenal book. I read so many books like you do for interviews, right? That it's yep. so hard. Like I probably go through 75 books a year where I'm mm -hmm. kind of, I'm kind of reading the book, but I'm kind of also just trying to get like the key elements of it. So sure. I'm, I'm trying right now to clutter all of that on my head. I'll tell you <laughs> what I'm doing right now, Jeff. I watched a guy on a YouTube video Talk about the complete Harvard classics. This guy had just purchased the five foot shelf of books, which is a five foot mm -hmm. shelf of like uh, the president of Harvard in 1920 something said, if you just read this five foot shelf of books, these volumes, you will have a classical Western education. Like it will like that will basically do you for a classical Western education. And this guy was so excited about this five foot shelf of books. He was talking about it and he's kind of working through it. And I was like, I, I was by the end of the video and like my fellow book lovers and Jeff, you're probably a lot like me. Like I was already thinking like, how am I going to get my hands on a full <laughs> set of the Harvard complete, complete Harvard classics, right? Mm. How am I going to do this? And I started going on like eBay and Amazon, all the other places. And I saw that they were, it was going to be like 800 bucks or a thousand dollars to buy like a, a complete set. And I was like, wait a minute, all the things in this complete Harvard classics are well beyond their copyright date. Mm -hmm. And so I went on the Amazon Kindle store and I found the complete 71 volume Harvard, complete Harvard classics for 99 cents on Amazon Kindle. 
<laughs> so I and which is better that's, because that's I can highlight and it syncs up with Readwise and it syncs yeah. up with Notion and all the stuff that I'm highlighting gets synced up everywhere. So it's better because I don't have a I don't have five feet of books <laughs> sitting on my shelf, right? right? I can take them with me everywhere I go. But B, everything I highlight or note can be synced up everywhere. So I that's that's the the one thing I would want to highlight is I'm working my way through the complete Harvard classics wow. and it's been a real joy reading some of these you know some of these thinkers and sort of their their perspectives and their points of view so that's the one i probably would highlight and you can get it for 99 cents on amazon <laughs> kindle and i highly recommend it i i love that you had that epiphany wait a second <laughs> that's awesome well as an author right like as an author i'm thinking like <laughs> wait a minute okay i know how copyright works here right so yeah uh, you mentioned Readwise and Notion uh, together. I'm a fan of Readwise slash Obsidian uh, is where, where my notes uh, reside typically, but but I'm familiar certainly with Notion and I've used it. And, and you may know this, but I uh, lead a cohort. I've not done it in a few months. Uh, I did a self-paced version uh, more recently uh, called Note Making Mastery. And it's where I walk readers, listeners uh, through the sort of four-part framework of collect, connect, crystallize, and create. Understanding how to better collect notes to yourself when what tools work best for you based on how you think, how to connect new ideas to existing ideas, uh, allowing for you know more serendipitous type activity among your notes, and then being able to crystallize those, meaning to, to distill them down to their essence and then create with them ultimately at the end of the day. Kind of having, having heard all that, I'd love to know, and you've already sort of hinted at some of the tools you use, but love to know just kind of what personal knowledge management means to you, how you go about making sure that the things that you learn don't get forgotten, that they don't you know, fall to the wayside. It's a really, it's a really great question, and I'll be candid and say I'm I'm a little bit in flux right now because I only recently discovered Notion a handful of months ago, oh, okay. and I'm actually currently building out. I mean, I have a personal dashboard I use every day where I track a lot of stuff, and I'm tracking all of my reading through Readwise and and mm-hmm. all my notes and stuff through Kindle and Readwise, and then they end up in Notion because it automatically syncs, which is really amazing. Yeah. But I'm working on some new book projects. The way I've I've handled it in the past uh, is actually in Apple Notes um, because. Because Apple Notes has become a phenomenal tool over the past couple of iterations, mm-hmm. um, as as good I think, or better than like Evernote ever was when I was a, a power Evernote, Evernote user, okay. which I, I moved away from. So for me, it's really just a matter of a making sure that I'm capturing the things that spark insight for me, but not you know some people capture indiscriminately; they just throw things mm-hmm. somewhere. I don't I don't do that. If if there's an article that really resonates with me, I always put with it the reason it resonated or the idea that it sparked, not just, you know, I don't just capture it and throw it somewhere and then hope later I remember why it was important to me. Mm. Like, for example, uh, I mean, a lot of the stories that are in the, in the book, actually, you know, I wrote a story about the um, men under stress, the World War II uh, study mm-hmm. that was cited in a, a book that I had read at one point, like I put that in there with the under the um, heading of like this makes me think of agency as I was researching agency, mm-hmm. um, so that I would know to go back to that. And the the study shows that fighter pilots in World War II had much higher job satisfaction than the infantry, even though. They had, I, th- I forget the exact stat, but it was like eight times, they were eight times as likely to die in the line of action 
but because they had their hand on the control, because they felt like they could fly wherever they wanted, they felt like they were in control of their fate mm. versus the infantry who were just told like, you know, charge over there. And they were right. more likely to live, but they felt out of control of their fate. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I read that and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's perfect. So I had to make sure I left it with a note of this is perfect for agency mm. or whatever, so that I would be able to find it later. Um, I also keep kind of a commonplace book where I just keep stuff that's interesting and I'll take notes, I'll write notes on my iPad, put them in there. And then I just go back and review my notes consistently because often there are things like the, the framework for this book actually emerged in 2016 but it wasn't mature yet. Right. right. Um, but because I had this, I, I didn't even call it bravery at the time. I'm trying to remember what I called it. It was, it was the something matrix is what I called it. It was the mm -hmm. like engagement matrix or something like that, mm -hmm. but it was, it was centering around bravery, but it took time and reviewing that and looking at it over the course of years to realize, Oh, I'm talking about bravery. That's what I'm talking <laughs> about here. And so, yeah, I just encourage people, a take a lot of notes, but B make sure that you're don't just, throw stuff indiscriminately in, make sure that you're annotating it in a way that you're going to understand why it sparked your attention. Because that's really the most important piece of it. It's not that you're collecting a bunch of stuff. It's that you understand how those dots are going to connect in the future. I'm so glad you hit on a couple of those things because they're very much what we talk about in Note Making Mastery. And I knew if anybody would, you, you would get it. You would just latch onto this instantly. And one of those is the review process and how important that is. And then the other is just understanding, uh, giving those things you're saving uh, context. I think what so many people struggle with is exactly what you talked about in collection without any thought for how that might be used. And they don't do future them any favors. Future them comes to a note and they're like, well, what was this? And they've got to completely reprocess it, re-download it, reread it just to get a sense for what it might have been saved uh, for. And so when you put that context with it, that, that, that little effort, that little bit of effort, it, it's kind of what I call writing your notes as if you're writing for someone else, because future you turns out to be someone else, right? Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. That's very wise. That's, that's my one for the day <laughs> or maybe the week. <laughs> Todd's book again is called The Brave Habit, A Guide to Courageous Leadership. Uh, it is out the day this episode releases. So whenever you're listening to this, you can get it right now. Uh, at Amazon, I assume, and also uh, thebravehabit.com, or are you recommending Amazon? You can go to thebravehabit.com. That'll point you to all different forms of booksellers. Uh, you know, just really get it wherever you prefer to read books. Um, you know, whether that be printed book, ebook, or audiobook, whatever, just wherever you prefer to listen to books or read books or whatever. Just uh, <laughs> I encourage you to, because my goal isn't. I don't want to sell a bunch of copies. I want people to read the book. And so that's my goal because you know, books that are purchased don't change lives. Books that are read ultimately can change lives if people apply what they read. And so that's my encouragement. That's why I made it short and accessible too. So people could actually get through it. Well, it never gets, Todd, visit five as good as any of the previous four. I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for, I don't know if your listeners understand, Jeff, what it takes to do a show of this caliber for mm. so long as you've done it and, and the cost of doing that and um, <laughs> how you've put this together with care for the people who are listening. So I just want to say thank you for being that professional who shows up and does the thing, even when it's inconvenient, because there are tons of us out here who really benefit from, from that professionalism and that commitment to your craft. So thank you. On the show notes page for this episode, I've added links to the resources Todd and I discussed, including the complete Harvard Classics 71 volume Kindle edition. There's actually six versions of it on Amazon. I've linked to the version that has the most and the strongest ratings. 
It happens, but it happens to cost twice as much as the version <laughs> that Todd picked up. Now, thankfully, in this case, that only equates to a dollar and ninety-nine cents. Still, well worth it. There on the show notes page, you can also find out ways to connect with Todd online. I highly recommend that. You can go to readtoleadpodcast.com/slash-five-one-one for episode five-eleven to view all those resources. Our featured book next week is called The Friction Project, and I'll be interviewing co-author Huggy Rao. And then two weeks from today, our scheduled guest is YouTube sensation. I don't know how else to refer to him than that. Guy by the name of Ali Abdal, who I've been following for a number of years, is considered the world's foremost productivity expert. We'll be digging into his book called Feel Good Productivity. Well, that does it for this week. Hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.